Welcome to Eucharist Podcast, where we're exploring what it looks like for a community of disciples to live all of life in reference to Christ. This week we're going to have a discussion of the second chapter of The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by Alan Kreider. So Ryan, get us started. What do you think about chapter 2? Can you give us kind of a summary what's going on? Yeah. Uh, chapter 2 is interesting. Um, it's probably the most challenging chapter in the whole book if you haven't been seminary educated or if you're not familiar with the early church. Uh, essentially what he's doing is he's doing kind of the heavy lifting uh, around primary sources, and he's setting the foundation for what he wants to say in the rest of the book. So he takes us on a tour of six early church fathers. He starts with Justin Martyr in the year one, about the year 150. He moves to Clement of Alexandria around the year 200, then to Tertullian, writing in, in the year 204. Then he talks about Origen, writing in the 230s. And then Cyprian in the year 250, and then ends with Lactantius writing around the year 300. And he gives us a sense of what they say about patience, why it's so important, and why this was, in a sense, a kind of obsession of the early church to talk about patience. Wonderful. Yeah, I, I found that this was a very interesting chapter, especially with the fact of how patience was how they lived their theology. Like, their view, virtues were something that they practiced, they didn't just boast about. Right. It's right. not abstract. It's it, not abstract, It, it yeah. takes you into the practical uh, nitty-gritty of life and becoming a certain kind of person. And, and this chapter is called The Good of Patience, and he's trying to say, why is it good? And part of the reason why he's asking that is because in the early, uh, or in the Roman Empire, the early church era, the Romans didn't think that patience was much of a virtue. It was actually something that was thought to be necessary for subordinates and slaves and victims, um, but it didn't really have a sense of virtue to it. Like, why would you want to be patient? Um, and so partly what these early church fathers are doing is they're giving, they're grounding their notion of patience in theology, in an understanding of God as a patient God. And that's a big part of what is kind of the take-home of, of this chapter here. So really, their theology of patience is unique because it's a theology that's lived in their lives. Yes, they articulate it and they wrote about it, mm -hmm. but they also are living it. And that's what this chapter talks about. Not only how much was written about patience, but how it was lived by the authors and by the early church. Mm -hmm. And I think this is an interesting and a unique way to think of theology. I think it's something that we don't really think of a lot because theology is such a intellectual activity for many of us that mm -hmm. we forget the importance of embodied theology. Yeah. And it's something that the early church lived. Yeah. It, this was so important to the, the early church that uh, Cyprian, uh, again, writing around the year 250, says that the distinctive sign of Christians is patience. And that kind of builds on some of the thinking of Tertullian, who is, who is saying that um, patience is the highest virtue, uh, which is interesting. It's, a, it's, it's quite a statement, actually. It, it, gives it a, a very high value, obviously. The, the other thing that, that, that was pointed out in this chapter was the connection between hope and faith and patience. So people who have hope that God is going to act, they can be patient because they don't have to have their way right now. Things don't have to look in the present as they think they should in the future because they, they, have, they have hope that God is going to break in and do his thing. And similar to that, and parallel to it, is the, the notion of faith. 
uh, Tertullian again describes uh, the absence of patience. That that is a characteristic of a world where there is not yet faith. This is again why he says that. Um, why Cyprian says that the distinctive sign of Christians is patience, because patience demonstrates faith and hope, that God is actually in control, that God is sovereign, God is working things out over time. And this is where some of the title of the book comes up, the, the patient ferment. When you're baking, I don't know much about baking, but when you're baking and you're waiting for the bread to rise, you, you don't get all anxious, you don't uh, try to force it, you just let it do its thing, because that's what yeast does. It makes the bread rise, and you can't you can't force it or, or, or speed it up. So I think some of the same thinking was what the what the church had was at this time was that they can't rush mission. They can't force things to get where they want them to go. That's really God's business. So maybe let's talk for a moment here about some of the the conclusions of the chapter. So Joshua, what for you were some of the take home points from this chapter that that resonated with you? I think the part that resonates with me the most is when he talks about patience as being rooted in God's character, and really in the gospel itself. He goes on to say in his summary, the heart of patience is revealed in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just so interesting. I love how he, he takes something like patience, which for me didn't have that high of stakes. It was more about, you know, waiting in line or waiting. It's more for, pragmatic. It's more pragmatic. Yeah. yeah. And he roots it in the character of God and in Christ himself. He Mm. even goes on in the chapter to say that patience, Jesus Christ is patience itself. It's patient. Mm -hmm. He is patience incarnate. Mm -hmm. And I love how when the fall happened in Genesis 3, God doesn't automatically fix everything in Genesis 4. He gives us hope of a resolution, but he allowed many chapters, many lifetimes, Mm -hmm. millennia Mm -hmm. to pass until the fulfillment of that promise happens in Christ, and the culmination of that promise happens in the future mm-hmm. at the end of the age. And I find that very comforting that that the gospel is not rushed, that God is in control, mm-hmm. that God is bringing about his plan. It's really interesting because when I think of people who are powerful, God being all-powerful, um, powerful people, wealthy people, they don't wait. They get what they want when they want it. Everybody else waits. But to think that God is patient is, it flips that all on its head. And that, that patience is a virtue, not just a necessity for people who are disempowered. Uh, I, I think that was striking mm-hmm. as I think about that. And for us, if there's something that is slow, well, we'll make an app for that. Um, yeah. Our job is to like get rid of lag time, right? And uh, everything that we're doing. I think that's interesting because that's another one of his take-homes for this chapter is that patience is not in human control. Hmm. That's something that's very interesting. It's in God's control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a sense that you can't buy patience. Yeah. Even though people try to manipulate things with money and with power, Yeah. the the virtue of patience is not something you can buy. It's something that comes slow, and it's not something that can be controlled. Yeah. He spends some time pointing out also that, that patience, that the early church— one of the expressions of the early church's value of patience was that they were nonviolent. They refused to use violence to resolve uh, things in retaliation. They were also, they refused to be manipulative or to coerce people into faith because that was an impatient thing to do. It didn't demonstrate trust that God was in control uh, and that. So I, I think there's some really practical things. Maybe we should turn the conversation for a moment and talk about some of those. 
So here's a question. Uh, what would a church look like that valued patients like the early church did? Like, what would it be like for Eucharist Church to be a patient church? I think that's a wonderful question. I think it would not merely be small change, but change that has to go to the roots. I think it would have to change how many of us view church and view our Christian lives, mm -hmm. because it'd be co very countercultural to the flow of most modern-day American churches. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would look like focusing on discipleship, on truly forming us so that our muscle memory mm -hmm. is that of nonviolence. Mm -hmm. Our muscle memory is that of love, that of patience. Mm -hmm. And those aren't things that you don't just get through in a weekend seminar right, or right. even a Bible study class. Like it's yeah. something that's built in. It's articulated through teaching, but it's also caught. It's in, it's it's not just taught, but it's inhaled. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I I just personal confession. I really struggle with patience. I'm not a patient person by by nature, uh, as my wife can attest to, and others who are around me. So, reading this, I'm simultaneously drawn to it. Like I want to be patient. I want to honor this this virtue. And I'm impatient with the process of becoming patient. Like, I, I just want it to be done with already. So I personally struggle. And because I'm the rector of this church, I, I infuse some of that impatience in, from me into the culture of this church. And so probably if we're to become a patient church, I need to do some repenting about this. And we need to, like, catch it together, those of us who are noticing, hey, that seems kind of impatient. Why don't we slow this process down? Or why don't we do this a little bit differently or take our time on that? Uh, and of course, there's moments where that's going to feel really bad to me, and I'm not going to like that. But things like things that I've been trying to practice, and I think that, the, that we're trying to infuse into, I know you practice this as well, is is structuring our life around prayer. Um, that takes patience. Like sometimes I just want to get through the Psalms. I'm like, I don't, I don't really want to pray these Psalms today. I just, I already know what they say. I'm going to get get on with it. But there's something about the process itself. Uh, of structuring life around a morning, noonday, and evening prayer. Um, so that would be one example of, of doing that. J just in general, though, a a posture of reliance on God rather than on technology or on my own financial capacity or my own willpower. That's that's a Copernican revolution itself in in a place like San Francisco. Yeah, when you talked about structuring your life according to prayer. I really find that that's, that's something that for me has been very important and something, I, I mean, I completely relate with the fact of like, sometimes you don't want to read that same Psalm again, mm -hmm. or you're like, I already, I've already read the Psalm last week. I or, prayed the Lord's Prayer like three times already, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I find it very interesting because I've found that the practice of that has this formational effect on me. Mm -hmm. And it took a while. I kind of almost had, you know, like when you're running and you're working out and you kind of hit that wall mm -hmm. and you need to break through that wall and then it's so much better. I find that there's sometimes that with prayer and with dealing with the Psalms or the Lord's Prayer, there's a sense of you need to learn how to read it differently. I think all of our formation when it comes to reading is that of consumption. Mm -hmm. You're studying for a test. Mm -hmm. You're taking in this new book so you can immediately apply its principles to make more money or to be more successful in whatever you do. And with the daily office, especially as Anglicans, 
there's the it forces you to slow down mm-hmm. and it forces you to be patient. I remember one of my one of the big things that helped me along this process is when a mentor told me to start practicing the daily office or doing my prayers aloud instead of just reading them because mm-hmm. I felt that when I, I I found out that when I was reading them silently in my head I had a tendency to rush it mm-hmm. and I'd kind of end up skimming that psalm or this aspect of of the morning or evening prayer because oh I'd already read it before so I'm just getting through it mm-hmm. but when I was forced to say it aloud it forced me to be slower and forced me to be patient with it mm. And it wasn't fun. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't speed it up. But by practicing that, it started to teach me the patience that I needed to then abide in the text and not to consume the text, but to actually be consumed by the text, to meditate mm-hmm. on it, to to really have the text for me instead of me having... The text had now more power over me than I had over it. Yeah. And that was an important shift in my own journey. And it's something I'm still struggling with, though. Yeah. But it, it's been a nice check and balance that has helped me. And we should just be honest and not glamorize patience. Patience isn't glamorous. It's yeah. frustrating at times. And even for the early church, patience for them meant sometimes that they lost in business. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't get the contract. They didn't they didn't get the deal done or whatever, you know, or that they lost their lives in some cases because they were patient rather than impulsively doing things. And so I think you, you have to, you cannot really be patient outside of, outside of a framework of hope and, and faith. Mm-hmm. And so I think actually what patience is doing is it's a practical way of saying, we're going to learn to be people who are truly reliant on God. And that, again, does not happen overnight. Uh, another practical sense of, of meaning for the church, for the early church, they were really careful not to slap the label of Christian on somebody too fast. In our era, um, we're very impatient with trying to, get people to take the label, um, to, to be able to celebrate a conversion maybe prematurely sometimes. So maybe a patient church, like if I think of our church, Eucharist church, maybe a patient church allows uh, a substantial amount of room for process where we recognize that people becoming Christians are going through a cultural formation, their identity formation process, and they may have faith in a, in a moment, you might someone might come to faith, but the process of becoming a Christian might be worked out over months and, and years. And um, the early church understood that. That's why they would have these liminal seasons where people were beginning to worship, beginning to recognize their love for for Jesus, uh, restructuring their life around that, and then baptism and integration into the church uh, happened as kind of the culmination of that process. Not right at the very beginning, necessarily. I think it's very interesting how the church, though, had a process of formation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we're going to get into that more in future chapters, because he he outlines how the early church actually did form Christians, and that's part of the, that's right at the heart of why I'm so fascinated by this book, and why it's so relevant to us. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ryan, for sitting down and taking the time to discuss the patient ferment of the early church. Tune in next week as we move into chapter three.